0: This is episode number 309 with the legendary data science instructor, Jose Portilla. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today and now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by my very own book, Confident Data Skills. This is not your average data science book. This is a holistic view of data science with lots of practical applications. The whole five steps of the data science process are covered from asking the question to data preparation, to analysis, to visualization and presentation. Plus you get career tips ranging from how to approach interviews, get mentors, and master soft skills in the workplace. This book contains over 18 case studies of real-world applications of data science. It covers off algorithms such as random forest, k-nearest neighbors, naive base, logistic regression, k-means clustering, Thompson sampling, and more. However, the best part is yet to come. The best part is that this book has absolutely zero code. So how can a data science book have zero code? Well, easy. We focus on the intuition behind the data science algorithms, so you actually understand them, so you feel them through. And the practical applications, you get plenty of case studies, plenty of examples of them being applied. And the code is something that you can pick up very easily once you understand how these things work. And the benefit of that is that you don't have to sit in front of a computer to read this book. You can read this book on a train, on a plane, on a park bench, in your bed before going to sleep. It's that simple, even though it covers very interesting and sometimes advanced topics at the same time. And check this out, I'm very proud to announce that with dozens of five-star reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, this book is even used at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, to teach one of their data science courses. So if you pick up Confident Data Skills, you'll be in good company. So to sum up, if you're looking for an exciting and thought-provoking book on data science, you can get your copy of Confident Data Skills today on Amazon. It's a purple book, it's hard to miss. And once you get your copy on Amazon, make sure to head on over to www.confidentdataskills.com where you can redeem some additional bonuses and goodies just for buying the book. Make sure not to forget that step. It's absolutely free. It's included with your purchase of the book, but you do need to let us know that you bought it. So once again, the book is called Confident Data Skills and the website is confidentdataskills.com. Thanks for checking it out and I'm sure you'll enjoy Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super pumped to have you back here on this very special episode of the Super Data Science Podcast, because today we have none other but the legendary data science instructor, Jose Portilla. Very interesting episode. You're probably wondering why we recorded it together, since we're direct competitors in the online education space in data science? Well, we'll answer that question for you right at the start of the episode. And we thought you'd be interested to have us both in the same room talking about your favorite topics such as AI, data science, and the future of the world. So in this episode, you will hear about neural networks that create other neural networks, how that all works, and what that means for data scientists, how to manage and lead a community of over a million students, The question that Jose gets asked the most and as you can imagine with such large communities we get hundreds, I think it's like 500 or so questions per day, per day that are asked in our courses and here you'll find out what is the most asked question for Jose and how he answers it. You'll also hear about the pyramid of learning and what is the pinnacle of learning, what you need to do in order to understand that you have indeed mastered a topic And finally, we're gonna have a very interesting debate about artificial general intelligence. I really enjoyed chatting to Jose and I can't wait for you to hear this podcast. So, without further ado, I bring to you the legendary data science instructor, Jose Portilla. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, super special guest on the show with me today, Jose Portilla, Jose, how are you going?
1: Good. <laughs> are Good you to life? be here. Because no, you're sitting right in front of me as if there was an audience, or we're in an empty room. I know, I know.
0: <laughs> you got to do it, uh, man. We, where are we, Jose?
1: We are at Udemy Live in Berlin, in Germany.
0: In Berlin, out of all places. I know, we right. Back in Berlin. <laughs> uh, what a great party last night.
1: Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. They had uh, the bird dogs, was it? Uh, the, uh,
0: Bird dogs. Yeah, if anybody is interested in some cool cover band in Berlin, check out Bird Dogs. They were epic.
1: Yeah, they were fantastic. Yeah. Genemy knows
0: how to throw a party. That's very true. Yeah. Like a lot of food, a lot of drinks and um the excursion on Friday was really cool.
1: Yeah, the boat tour and then the Burroughs collection and then all that stuff
0: in the bunker that's above ground.
1: That was really. I, I was a little more interested in the building. Yeah. than The I don't know. What did you think of? The <laughs> this building is off cool. topic, but like, What did you think of the artwork? Uh, the artwork.
0: Um, I never understood contemporary art. Yeah. Like, um, you know, m- po- postmodernism, but what I what I really liked in this tour was that they explained it and that allowed me like you know like for example that that one with the trampoline and like the arrow and the horse right that's like compared to picasso that took like five minutes to put together i'm not you know maybe it took ages for the person but it's not you can't really compare that to classic art it's it's just different realms but the way they explain is it's not about what the artwork is it's about what it represents what the person was thinking and kind of like the idea that they're provoking you to think about and when you think about it that way, it's, it's like somebody writing down an idea mm-hmm. with, with pen and paper. But here they're just doing it with like sketches or you know household goods or whatever else. And in that way, like that's that for me that was much more, much easier to to accept. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in that in that sense, I, I like the explanations. What about you?
1: That's actually the thing I dislike the most about it. Yeah. Uh, I know. In my opinion, it's like if you're artwork is so reliant on a third party to happen to explain uh-huh. your thesis behind the artwork maybe the art is not the best manifestation of trying to get your message across mm. maybe maybe you should just be writing a paper on whatever topic and like you'd, it'd be clear to more people um, but some some of them were like crazy uh, like the one of the the images of the houses remember it was oh, yeah, like yeah. 9x9 so the thing was this I guess to explain it to the listener a little bit. Apparently there used to be this old uh, German company that would fly around in a helicopter, take aerial photos of your home, then go door to door and try to sell you an aerial photo of your house. And apparently this was very popular in the 70s to have a little aerial photo of your house. And then Google Maps comes along and they go out of business. Um, So they have 30,000 like essentially stock images that they did not end up selling because um, not everybody wanted to buy a picture of their house. And then they gave it to this artist and he manually instead of the convolutional <laughs> neural network or some <laughs> filter, he just looked like uh, for patterns, so then he gets like the nine images where everyone's washing their car, yeah. or the nine images where all the windows are boarded up in these houses.
0: Yeah, and puts them into like one one big frame or like into a collection yeah, uh, near each other, and then you have to guess the
1: name, like like car wash. Yeah, you have to f- figure out what's, what's the same or similar track between all these paintings and images. Yeah, definitely some interesting
0: ideas, but g- fair point on maybe it's not the best way if you need explanation. And speaking of the building, it, so it's a bunker above ground with like two, from World War II, with two or three meter thick ceilings and walls. Did, were you part of that? Uh, did they tell you in, in your group that the bunker, like there's an actually a living residence? Yes, above?
1: The, the whole, <laughs> the whole building is insane. Yeah. Cause like you, you look at it from the outside and yeah, it's like concrete. Um, very industrial or brutalism looking and i thought to myself like that's weird bunkers are usually i I thought they were underground yeah and i was like i'm surprised this could have survived the you know berlin bombings and then you go inside and they show you how thick the walls are and you're like oh this could survive (laughs) anything because they're hugely thick um and yeah then later in the tour the owners of the collection live at the top floor of this bunker it's so weird
0: and and they explained to us how they managed to do that because in Berlin, you're not you. You want to tell that story? Uh,
1: you probably remember it better than I do. Like some in, weird legal thing, right?
0: Like yeah, in Berlin, you're not allowed to legally add um, an extra floor on top of a building that already exists, mm-hmm. right? So and this was a bunker. They don't want to live in the bunker. They wanted to live, you know, add a floor on top. Yeah. But the legal loophole was that bunkers, this this um, building doesn't fall under like the classification of a house. It falls under the classification of a bunker, and bunkers are normally underground. So. Everything that we see above ground in this case is considered the basement. Basement one, yeah, basement two, right. basement three, basement four. So they were like, oh, we got to add a top, le- top level. We can't live in a basement.
1: Yeah.
0: Something like that. So that was really fun. So you're having a good time in Berlin overall?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's been great to. I've just been traveling around Europe before this. And yeah. Then, yeah. So it's been nice to get to see everybody.
0: Very nice. Yeah. Um, well, today's podcast, right? Um, first of all, Some of our students who know us both will be...
1: (laughs) Have their minds blown that we're talking to each other. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It would be like thinking, what is... Did the world turn around? Because we are apparently like... Well, we're competitors, right? We compete. Yeah, yeah. Fierce competitors (laughs) at each other's throats. Uh, So how would you explain that? Why are we talking more, let alone recording this podcast? if we're such
1: fierce competitors. It's so funny because, like, well, we've had this conversation now multiple times, but uh, that everyone from the outside thinks, um, like, one of us has to, like, die in order for the other to survive. (laughs) Hunger games. Yeah, exactly. But if anything, it's the opposite, um, especially on something, like, specifically, like, Udemy, where, you know, uh, I don't know, some people think, like, oh, you probably wish that your competitors come out with, like, really bad courses or something. Mm. That way your courses can reign supreme. When in fact the opposite is true, because the worst thing that can happen to me is that a popular competitor releases a bad course. Cause then students think, oh, like even just online education in general, it wouldn't be that great. Or, you know, suddenly it becomes a reflection of not just one course, but their entire online learning experience. Um, so one of the best things that come to me is have a competitor like you with good content and then um it's like I was telling you earlier, uh, buying a course is not like buying a car where you buy one car and then many years later you're you know not buying a car until much further into the future. It's more like buying a book on a topic you like. You're gonna buy multiple books um, by multiple people. So the best thing I have to me is have a competitor with a good course which engages the student and then says like, oh, I can actually learn some of this complex stuff online. Let me go check out other courses, et cetera. So, yeah, it's not a it's not some Hunger Games situation. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, for sure. And also, engage one course. Tell my friends about it; they'll come. And different people like different styles. Like you and I have different styles of teaching. Inevitably, yeah. everybody is unique, and somebody might uh, prefer the way you explain something. Somebody might prefer the way I explain, or somebody might benefit from both.
1: I was gonna, I was just about to say different people like both styles. I see. I would say that the Venn diagram of our crossover students is huge. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For sure, and and also what I liked about the competition is, it uh, doesn't let you slack off, right? Like I mean, either of us, yeah, because there you hold it, We hold each other up to a standard, and so, so like if there was just one of us, then like the standard drops, and like you, you first of all might not notice that your standard of education teaching is dropping. Students might not notice because they have nothing to compare to, and. And then you won't be incentivized to improve, right? And I, I like this, that like, I, I can't let my standards drop. You can't let your standards drop because the nature of the competitive market.
1: Yeah. Yeah, following there, the, I don't know, the quality of the course is getting better. I don't know if you remember your first course. Like, have <laughs> yeah. you ever looked back at it? it yeah, like, I have. Oh, I was so I was so, shy. so embarrassed by <laughs> how bad my first courses are. I
0: know. I know. It's like night and day. Yeah. Uh, but, it, like, I do appreciate the effort I put in, like, listening back to it, like, it, it took so much courage to start recording. I know.
1: Recording. <laughs> it blows my mind that I even started doing it, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Because you're by yourself in a room recording it, not knowing if anyone will ever even view this. Yeah. And I'm, just, I'm shocked that, I don't know, it's almost like a different person made that course. Yeah. It's like, I can't believe I did this.
0: <laughs> All I can be is, like, grateful to that person who I was. <laughs> yeah, right? For making that leap. That was good. <laughs> Um, okay, so now with that out of the way, um, I don't know. Let's let's maybe talk about what are what are some of the recent trends, some of the recent things that uh, you're seeing in the uh, data science AI industry that you're creating courses on that are you know students are excited about.
1: Um, well, let's see. Recent trends. There's always new updates to uh, the various deep learning libraries. So, like TensorFlow 2.0 mm. just came out. And like just just came out. Yeah. Like a couple weeks ago, maybe?
0: TensorFlow? No, I think it was in June.
1: Well, that was the a beta or alpha. right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the official 2.0 release yeah. was was pretty recent. Um, and then PyTorch 1.0 also came out really recently.
0: Okay, very cool.
1: Um, and so, those, those are some new things. Uh, just those, the new library is always being developed. Um, and then I. Th- Maybe this may not be such a new trend now that I recently saw the publication date of this paper, but I just recently found out about this was the um, Neural Architecture Search, or oh. NAS, by Google, uh, or Google AI, where they're basically using recurrent neural networks to create or search for optimized architectures um, for different problems. So, like, the Safari 10 dataset, you know, with the... It's so like 32 by 32 colored images of like 10 different topics, like planes, frog, Six, whatever. 60,000 images there. Yeah. So the what they're doing is they're basically deciding that humans, since we design everything in a very structured way, like convolutional neural networks are very structured with their kernels, uh, everything's still like kind of squared, connected, um, that perhaps there is some more organic, more optimized connection. So they're using a recurrent neural network to actually build the architecture of a of another network yeah. to solve for the safar 10 uh data set problem and they were able to actually improve the performance quite a bit um from the, whatever the state-of-the-art convolutional neural network could do yeah um, and this is with a a network with essentially what looks like to the human eye randomized uh, connections um, and they can even like skip layers and stuff yeah. um, and so that that one really blew my mind of the fact that i used to think now like oh the future is like recurrent neural networks so the future is convolutional neural networks when probably the reality is the future is some unknown random network that another network has figured out uh-huh. so it's almost like the uh um what is it like the i am robot or what's i am one? robot yeah, yeah the Isaac I, I robot, I robot where you have uh, robots building robots. Yeah, now yeah. we have <laughs> neural networks building n- other neural networks.
0: That's really cool. And then you can go deeper than neural networks building neural networks.
1: Yeah. Then have, Yeah. now you, So <laughs> then the other thing then it's like, like a loop almost, like yeah. have a neural network build a neural network for finding neural networks. Yeah. Like, what's the most optimized <laughs> thing? Um, uh, so, yeah, that one that one really blew my mind, because it, it really showed that the, the shape of the actual network Um, seems to have some uh, quite a bit more importance than the weights Mm. Um, and it's not something i think well this was published in like 2017 so now people i'm sure are really thinking about it but definitely just five years ago i don't think that many people were thinking about uh, if a randomized neural network would actually perform better than a structured one uh, given the same like randomized initialization of weights
0: yeah, and interesting because uh, you sent me that paper. I had to look through it. First of all, I was, I was surprised. I was like, yeah, this is 2017. Yeah. Oh, and, um, but still, it, uh, it also, like, as you said, blew my mind that you have from scratch, right? The, this, this neural network that they created uh, to create neural networks was building them from absolutely zero and outperforming by a, mar- by a small margin, like 0.09%. performance and 1.05 percent faster than the human ones but still outperforming them on on the sephar right yeah yeah 10 10 data set um that was that was really cool and so the way like the way i understood it the way it works is it takes the neural network and that is building or Mm. wants to build and represents it as a variable length string so like it puts it into like a a text string basically, the representation of the neural network. And then it iterates through that string, uh, through what, um, what's it called, gradient descent, right? Mm -hmm. uh, To make sure that, uh, to optimize for the accuracy of the image prediction, is that
1: about right? Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, Yeah, and I think I think maybe the reason I found out about it, about it so recently was, I I recently this this year for sure, even though maybe it was published uh, two, two three years ago, um, I recently saw the pictures oh. of the of the neural network architectures that the RNN was actually solving for, and it was the weirdest looking. I mean, it looked like a little kid drew sloppy lines yeah. with like random neurons everywhere. Um, nothing was even. It wasn't like you you would expect maybe the the RNN would find some sort of hidden structure, right? But it was just, it, you know. Not unstructured. Yeah, for better or for worse, it looks more like an organic brain, like an actual biological brain, right? That's
0: so cool. You got to send me those images. Yeah, I'll have to find them.
1: Because they're, you look at them, and it's like, there's no way this performs better than a structural network.
0: Have you ever seen those uh, images of when uh, certain parts of like a, a building or an airplane, instead of a human designing them, they get an AI to build it? Oh yeah, yeah. Through like uh, reinforcement learning, mm-hmm. and it's completely weird, completely random. You know, like like simple parts that hold, you know, that part under a table that holds the the legs of the table to the the main part of the table. Yeah, you know that that like uh, ninety degree type of angle metal thing. Mm-hmm. Like if you get an AI to design, it looks completely randomly weird, and it's like thirty percent lighter, hundred percent stronger, less material required. And it's, it's very it looks very organic.
1: Yeah, I remember I was once in a museum and one of the exhibits was an uh, antenna mm. that was designed by a, it wasn't technically AI, it was like a genetic algorithm that tried to keep solving for what kind of antenna could get the strongest signal. Mm-hmm. And the antenna looked so weird, um, it looked like a strain of spaghetti like yeah. floating in space or something. And it was like, yeah, this is what the algorithm figured would get the strongest signal in this particular spot. Um, and it just goes to show that it's really hard to have intuition for some of this stuff. And it kind of makes sense, like, um, I don't know, the, the more you study, like, evolution and biology, hmm. like, certain animals are super weird, right? Or, like, um, like you see a platypus <laughs> or, or like, a squid has a beak, yeah. like a bird. Yeah, yeah, It's so bizarre, but, it, I don't know, nature... Is essentially a really long reinforcement learning <laughs> yeah. algorithm right where it's That's like true. many many generations what works what doesn't work yeah
0: but what, what I find interesting I was also thinking about it just now that at the same time in nature a lot of things are symmetrical you know yeah it, right? as weird as they are they're symmetrical but what AI designs most of the time is asymmetrical you know like there's kind of like a combination of both in nature
1: yeah and then not to get too philosophical but there's then you certain, see certain numbers keep popping up in nature, right? Mm. Like uh, pi or something.
0: Or the Fibonacci numbers.
1: Yeah, or the fact that like the definition of a normal distribution, the actual function for it has pi in there, mm-hmm. like it blows my mind, like how yeah. is this <laughs> freaking number showing up everywhere and things that you wouldn't think it would show yeah. up in, like you wouldn't think that relationship of a circle would have much to do with a normal distribution. Yeah. But then, like, it happens. And, and then everything
0: follows, way. like, the heights of humans, I don't know, populations of animals. That's right, yeah. Bacteria. It's all, like, normally, a lot of things are normally distributed in this world.
1: Yeah, it's so, I don't know. There's, <laughs> it, There may be some deeper order to things that yeah. uh, we're just not getting. But, yeah, but then you see, yeah, like I said, you see a platypus, and you're like, there must be some random noise here, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, crazy. All right, well, shifting gears a little bit, What's, you teach online, and yes. by the way, congratulations, 1.2 million students.
1: Yeah, well, congratulations to you too, to the both of us, I guess.
0: <laughs> it's, it's crazy. How, how does that make you feel? 1.2 million students worldwide.
1: Uh, it feels bizarre. <laughs> um, I remember thinking, like a long time ago, like, man, when I hit 100,000 students, like, that'll be it, I would have hit the ultimate goal. Yeah. And then you hit that, and like you've hit it too, yeah. and then you think, okay, two hundred and fifty thousand students, let's really go for it some crazy goal then you hit that and yeah. you're like, uh okay, half a million and then and so yeah, it's just been absolutely uh insane how fast everything's been growing um, yeah. just in a couple of years,
0: yeah it's it is it is very fast um we're about to get we're, I think at nine hundred and twenty thousand yeah it's so, about- so
1: that, like if, if I bet you if we had this co- same conversation like even just some weeks from now, yeah, we, you would have had a million as well. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. Next time I see you, for sure you'll have <laughs> at least a million, if not yeah. much more.
0: Yeah. Um, and uh, and that puts out a lot of responsibility, right? You gotta you gotta create the right content, the right guidance. It's no longer like just fun and games and just putting out there like things that you. Passionate about but you also got to think through what do people need? What what do your one 1.2 million students need? What what are their? Uh, requirements you got to think about the needs of the students and I guess my question to you is like How do you how do you go about that? How do you go about communicating with your audience and finding out like what what is it that you can help them with the most in this? Uh, like in the next this next stage of your journey? That's
1: an interesting question because like uh, it's almost like as we've been progressing through this uh online education world and this population of students the analogies keep changing so at first it was like okay i can structure myself as if i teach a course like of like a classroom of 30 students right then it starts getting too big it's like okay well now i'll structure myself um, like a seminar so maybe i'll have a set piece of notes for students like they would in a large seminar class right less one-on-one interaction Then it starts getting bigger it's like, well, I guess now I'm structuring myself as a department out of college, right? Mm. So now like I have TAs or something and a much more standardized practice across multiple courses or something like that. And then you start structuring yourself as a university or something, right? right? So then now you have multiple departments of like, oh, uh, Python topics or R topics or Tableau topics, et cetera. And then there's some sort of structure within those, et cetera. And now with R scale, it's almost like the analogy becomes like a city or something, Uh right? So then you have to start thinking of. At this point, you know, one-on-one interaction as much as I love it is kind of impossible. We can't communicate with every citizen yeah. of a city of a million people, yeah. right? Um, so then you start trying to think of, um, you know, what does a city do? So, they may have like meetups, right? So then we try to um, have different sources for students to interact with each other. Um, that's maybe a little more fluid. So, and this is something. Maybe you can have a device for me because I know you're probably better at this than I am. But just trying to build that sense of community, um, maybe off of you to me because the Q and A forums for interaction purposes from one student to another isn't exactly optimized. So we at first we tried Slack, um, that quickly got unscalable because we couldn't pay for every student, right? Yeah, yeah. and it deletes the history. Then we tried Gitter, um, which is kind of like this Slack based off GitHub. Um, but that was also starting to have scaling problems. And then we switched to Discord, mm-hmm. which uh I hadn't really heard of it before um until someone suggested it to me. And it's like for online gaming. Yeah. Do you know yeah, what it yeah. is? Yeah. yeah. I've heard of it. Yeah. So it's it's a free version of essentially what Slack does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so far that's what we're using mm-hmm. um to try to help scale a sense of community. Um and then yeah, and they can do things like well like I said, you're probably better at this than I am of like things like a podcast or something to build a sense community or like some sort of weekly updates that kind of thing where you know you're not gonna be able to talk to each student but at least you can try to encourage um, students talking to one another uh, so I think as i or as we uh, scale larger um, trying to encourage student to student interaction mm-hmm. um, is you know one of my priorities
0: yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh- I wouldn't say we're much, much better than you at this. Uh, at Super Data Science, we're also exploring things. So right now we are trying out this, the Slack approach mm-hmm. that you've already tried. Um, we're also considering an approach of forums, mm-hmm. uh, an approach of building like a, our own system because our whole LMS at Super Data Science uh, learning management system is uh, completely custom built yeah, by, by ourselves. That. Um, and so we can add on whatever we want. It's just like, we just need to see that there's a need for it and there's time. But in general, I completely agree with you that you, as much as as well, I, I want to interact with everybody. I, I simply physically cannot do that. Yeah. And uh, therefore putting people into groups to talk to each other, that's the best. I, I'll give you an example. I was in, so at uh, Data Science Go, the conference we run in San Diego, mm-hmm. I was running a workshop on Tableau And there's, I think, like 60 people in the room and uh, all different levels. And I said right away, this is a workshop for beginners. If you're advanced, you know, there's another workshop in this neighboring room about like AI ethics. Go there. You you get a lot of value out of that. This is a workshop for beginners. Uh, And I think one people changed the room. But still, there were like a lot of different levels here, very advanced people, beginner people. And while we were going through these exercises or building these dashboards, some people were going really fast ahead. And I thought... Like, what are you doing in this room? I told you, go to the mm-hmm. other one. And they were like, yeah, no, I just wanted to play around, see see what the dashboard will be like, see what uh, the data set will be like. And so what I started doing is said, all right, if you are if you went ahead, like far ahead, why don't you get up and help somebody who's falling behind? You know, there's 60 people, which is not a million, but still I can't go help everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the, the more advanced uh, people, like I remember specifically Jonathan and Ogo, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if they're listening to this, huge thank you for that they they just got up and, like, helped out a lot of people. And there were others as well. That, and in, in that sense, nobody was, like, bored. Everybody yeah, yeah, was yeah. keeping up. And I think that sense of community is is amazing in data science. Like, data scientists want to help each other. Mm-hmm. It's our job is to facilitate that and find the best ways. And it looks like we're both exploring to find, like, what is the right medium for this community to thrive.
1: Yeah, because, um, I don't know, as a... Uh... It almost sounds douchey to say this, but like we really are like pioneers mm. in this space because there's there's no one else we can really talk to of like, how do you deal with a community of students this large mm-hmm. um, where you don't have some university or company level team to like handle all of it, right? So, mm-hmm. we have to explore these different methods. Um, and the other thing I was going to say about the, the students interact with each other, I think they... I think students get a lot out of it um, as far as the... There's some more official term for it, but like uh, the pyramid of knowledge or the steps Mm. to really understanding a topic. Like the very final step is teaching a topic, right? Mm. So you know you understand something if you're able to teach it. So I think it helps the students um, to help other students because then they know that they really understand the topic if they're able to help out another student in it. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. There's some some official term for this that... Someone will have to Google that there's a hierarchy of like understanding, and the very last or top level is the ability to teach it. Oh, okay. It has some sort of proper noun name, whoever discovered it. Okay.
0: Uh, well, yeah, I think I've heard it as well before, but it doesn't come to the top of my head. But I agree with you, yeah.
1: Although I teach stuff, and I, I feel like I don't understand crap, <laughs> <laughs> even though I teach stuff. So. Why do you feel that way? <laughs> um... Because <laughs> there's like a new thing every like five seconds in this freaking field. Oh, yeah. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But actually, uh, I was going to say that might be one of the more positive aspects of the field we work in, yeah. is that the libraries are so new sometimes, mm. right? And Because if you, if you are the world's expert in TensorFlow 2.0, mm. and you are not a developer at Google that was actually working on it, mm. um, the amount of total experience you can have at this moment in time is at most like one or two years, mm-hmm. right? um technically like it's based on care so you okay. could kind of have more experience but for something like pytorch 1.0 as well mm-hmm. like the most experience you could possibly have to be the world's expert is just a few years right mm-hmm. versus something like calculus or whatever like it was around since you were born so mm-hmm. you could have like a lot more experience in it and i think because in this field so many people remember what it's like to be a beginner because it was not that long ago mm-hmm. that they were a beginner themselves okay. just by the nature of the field mm-hmm. um they don't mind helping out because it was not too long ago themselves that they knew nothing about like mm-hmm. TensorFlow or PyTorch, so I think that definitely helps out uh, just a sense of community that for whatever reason data science and Python has versus some other. Not to disparage other uh, communities, but like, consulting. Yeah, like <laughs> consulting or some some people in like uh, JavaScript or web development that's been around much longer, like yeah. you know HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Uh, there's definitely an attitude of like. Um, oh you you don't get this you know whatever Um, because they've they've had enough time with it like 15 or 20 years since web 1.0 that it's probably faded from their mind of what it's like to be a beginner Mm. versus python and data science that the libraries are constantly being updated and there's a new library you know every year so to speak uh everyone remembers what it's like to be a beginner so they don't mind as much helping out
0: is is your community mostly beginners how what did you
1: that's a great question of the general skill level of the community. Um, I, I don't. Know, it depends how you define beginner, because they come from all like walks of life, right? Yeah. So there's people that yeah, they've never programmed before. Yeah. Um, but they'll have like a PhD in psychology. I don't. Yeah, psychology or something. So they're not beginners in the sense that uh, they're beginners at learning, right? Because this person is clearly able yeah. to self-motivated and teach themselves complex topics. It's just that they didn't take a Python class mm-hmm. in university because it wasn't taught there for mm-hmm. them. Um, and then there's other people that you know they're they already work at like AWS or something, or they, they're already working at Google, and their boss just said, "Oh, I need you to learn this esoteric library in Python or R or whatever." Mm-hmm. And then they're definitely not beginners, and yeah. they for them it's almost like they just need to pick and choose certain lectures from the courses of like, "Oh, let me quickly just learn these couple things my boss told me to learn." Yeah so i think yeah the the majority are quote unquote beginners like newcomers but, to data science exactly yeah um but then they're definitely not they're not beginners in the sense that they don't know anything yeah. they usually have some sort of expertise in a field outside of uh data science or programming, and I think it kind of attracts that mind that you are uh already technically adept at something makes you interested in the possibilities of leveraging data science and python with your uh, current skill set
0: definitely that's something we're also seeing i think i think it's about like between 60 and 70 percent are newcomers to data science whether Mm -hmm. just college students or transitioning into data science Uh, and then about 20 or so percent are more advanced practitioners Mm -hmm. and then about 10 percent are Managers, executives, entrepreneurs. Um, But what I find interesting is that over time, because we've been doing this for years, right? Like, how long have you been teaching?
1: Since March 2015.
0: 2015. Yeah. Um, I started on Udemy in 2014, but in data science, it was I think June
1: 2015.
0: Okay. And so, similar timeline, right? And so, over that, over those, what, four years? Like, I've seen people grow from beginner to like intermediate to almost advanced practitioner level like I- i've seen people get jobs and so on and it's really cool to see this growth and especially if you get to meet them in person yeah that that is just fantastic you're like oh i remember you three years ago you were like asking these questions and you you were just starting out into your journey you're transitioning from you know whatever other career you had and now you're like you're a data scientist you're coaching others you know people asking you for advice that is so inspiring
1: it blows my mind sometimes, like the careers that some of my students have been able to get. Like, uh, I was just talking to someone recently who ended up becoming a, like a senior developer for AWS. Mm. And I started thinking to myself, would I be able to get that job? Like, <laughs> I don't think I would, <laughs> given like the interview process and how hard it is. Yeah. And they're like, oh, thank you, your course helped me out so much. I was like, I don't know if I could do your job. <laughs> like yeah. but, uh, So it blows my mind when you see students getting jobs that like I don't think like I would probably fail that interview if I wasn't like really practicing for it. Yeah. So it's crazy the growth of the students and how. Yeah, how fast everything's been going just in the past few years that's
0: absolutely true um what's the most common question that students ask you um,
1: where do i find the notes <laughs> <laughs> you, you get like
0: hundreds of questions like we both get hundreds yeah, of questions yeah right? yeah
1: um well there's there are certain questions that's just like uh it's also a bit of a selection bias of the kind of person that asks a question on the on forums or something is usually a person who has not like done a quick stack overflow search or something Mm -hmm. um but beyond that um beyond like little uh, silly questions like that uh maybe one of the most common questions i get is like how do i choose a machine learning model um and often i one thing i do is i point them straight to the. You know, on scikit-learn, they have their choosing an estimator diagram. Mm-hmm. It's like this weird, ugly little bubble tree chart mm-hmm. um, that's like, oh, if you have this many data samples, choose this. Um, if you're trying to do unsupervised or supervised, do that. Mm-hmm. So I point is that chart. But then I also tell them that realistically, for some of these models, it's difficult to have an intuition for them. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's, once you deal with them a lot, then you can be like, oh, I think you should do this, like, blah blah but like if you're about to do an svm there's not that many people that would be like have a strong intuition of what the exact c value or gamma value should be right they pretty much always just do a grid search um and the same for choosing a model usually run a couple and see what performs best or then make uh, a combination of models right Um, and i think it's a lot of students sometimes go into it thinking like by the end of this I will know exactly what model to choose in any situation, when realistically, you're still going to have to test out different models. Um, And I think it's hard to convey to students that even after you are extremely knowledgeable on this topic, when it comes to a new problem, you're still just going to have to do what everyone else does, explore the unknown, not really know what's the best model. Um, So you can be the world's top expert at the end of the day, when it comes to a new problem, you're still gonna have to like kind of guess and check almost. Yeah, yeah, you know, which is kind of to bring it back exactly what that neural architecture yeah. search is doing, right? Um, just keep guessing and checking until you find the the good fit for the good model.
0: Oh, or what uh, AutoML is designed to do. Exactly. Yeah. Do you think AutoML will replace data scientists?
1: That is such a good question because I, I used to think like, oh crap. Uh, Maybe like we're going to be out of a job, <laughs> especially like these robot building robots and models building models. Like what's left for us? Um, I, I don't know. I think for I think what is defined as a simple problem uh, keeps expanding uh, as you go throughout time, right? Because something like a linear regression task many many years ago, right? Um, as Galton is just beginning to figure it out, that's like an extremely hard problem. Like how do I find the line of best fit? Mm-hmm. Um, now that's an extremely easy problem. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it'll I don't think it will replace data scientists or machine learning practitioners. It will just basically push them to harder problems and reclassify things as uh, easily solvable problems or easier problems for uh, something to be automated against.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and uh, I think there's always going to be room for human creativity yeah. in, in these aspects. Um, well, in, at least for the next 10 years. <laughs> yeah, well, then you,
1: then you see the uh, the neural networks that are painting and yeah, yeah, yeah. the recurrent neural networks that are doing text generation, the yeah. uh, character. Uh, I'm sure you've read that blog post of like uh, the unreasonable effectiveness of recurrent neural networks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's writing out Shakespeare.
0: Yeah, that's an old blog post. That's a well. very old blog post. Like
1: 2015 post. or something
0: yeah. like that. Really good one as well.
1: Fantastic. And it always blows my mind that the network is doing it Character by character, mm-hmm. not word by word, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you can—the fact that you can even read it yeah. blows my mind.
0: Have you seen? There's a movie that they filmed based on a script created by an. A, I have heard know,
1: of it. I definitely have not seen it. Uh, <laughs> it what is it called? Uh, I forgot.
0: Something solar or something. Mm-hmm. I, I'll I'll link to it in the show notes and I'll send it to you as well. It is ridiculous. Like they they got, um, uh, Mid- middleton. So the actor from Silicon Valley, you know that TV show? Oh yeah yeah. Jeff um, Middleton
1: or something like that. I, I forget his name, but yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah,
0: and uh, and then they got him to act the main role, and it's like a whole script written by this neural network that even gave itself a name. It's been a while; I forgot. Like it called itself like Barney, or something. like it called yeah. its, its itself <laughs> a name. And it's like a thirty or like fifteen minute long short short movie. um It was on the London Film Festival, I think. Hmm and like the sentences themselves make sense by yeah. the, like pe- what people say in the movie but overall it's complete nonsense but yeah, they yeah. still acted it out in a way that you get like shiver goosebumps down your, mm. down your spine like wow like this is, this is a space saga of, with a love story in it yeah uh, it's pretty funny pretty funny
1: yeah it's crazy because um you know it's clear that the the networks are able to easily conquer now like things like grammar mm. um and it will just take a deeper network to, under, to conquer something like plot, mm. right? And then I know, I don't know if you read. This was maybe within the past year. OpenAI um, created a basically a model to produce like text articles. Mm, no, it's um, no one. Yeah, that that was really interesting because they did not release the full model because yeah. they thought it was too dangerous. Oh wow! For because they basically with a seed sentence of like uh, I don't know uh, Syria blah blah right. Yeah. Um, suddenly, this model could generate a full, was essentially like fake news text wow. article that read perfectly, that really read like someone had written it personally, and it was just completely made up by a network. Mm. Um, and They decided it was it was so good at generating fake news mm. style articles that they refused to release the full network. That's crazy. Yeah.
0: It's, it's kind of like reminds me of the story of CRISPR, the, the lady that developed CRISPR uh-huh. for uh, adjusting uh, genes. Mm-hmm. Like, as soon as it came out of the lab, it was like, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, she she was like, like, this is not going to be, <laughs> this is very dangerous for the world, right? Like, what have we created?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the way, it's almost like a milestone of, you know a technology is really good and really worth pursuing yeah. if it's always like this double-edged sword, um, something like atomic science, right? Yeah. Like, you have this really interesting aspect of nuclear energy. Um, and, and a certain reactors like a thorium reactor or whatever yeah. has the potential for like very low nuclear waste and you're conquering the atom itself yeah. like, what the universe is built out of on the other hand. You also have the ability to like create a nuclear weapon. Yeah um, and I think it's like that for for anything like you have convolutional neural networks that can detect cancer or skin cancer better than a, any doctor could mm-hmm. um, but then at the same time you could abuse these networks to then begin like racial profiling based off like corrupt data sets right so yeah any technology I think has the ability to be exploited for good or bad Um, but at least it's a good signal that like you're onto something yeah yeah. because like CRISPR like you were saying like you know if you see a child with a you know birth defect or something the fact that you could maybe fix it preemptively is fantastic yeah but then should you be able to choose the color of your baby's eyes. Mm. Uh, maybe not so much, I don't yeah. know. Then, then there's also the ethical questions and the ethics of AI is something that, I don't know, that, that'll take a long time to catch up to the technology.
0: For sure, and what do you think, how far are we from AGI?
1: It's funny, I was just having a conversation um, with someone about this here at Udemy Live. It, every time I, I get asked this question, my timeline becomes shorter. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I remember when I was first asked this question, I was like, Psh, "Never." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I start building out networks myself. And the one that the one that really convinced me was the very first uh, a couple years ago, when I really built out my first good text generation mm-hmm. network. I was like, "Ooh, this is way more effective than I thought it was going to be." Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I felt like I have I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm actually able to do something that could like fool a person.
0: Um, Imagine someone who knows what they're doing. And, and they, that's like, exactly why fifty of them. <laughs>
1: yeah, so and there's people way smarter than me working on stuff yeah. that's way harder than this. Yeah. Um, will it be in my lifetime? I don't know. I definitely now believe that it will be reached. It's it's inevitable now. Yeah. That at a certain point in humanity, um, there will be general AI, uh, the singularity or whatever. Yeah. Um, will it happen in my lifetime? I don't know. Maybe as a as in, like, hopefully an old man on my deathbed, yeah. maybe it'll become more clear, like, oh, yeah, like in a couple of years. They'll
0: oh, man, be I think right. 100% in our, in our life. I think, like, what's his name? Um, uh, Ray Kurzweil, right? 2025, 20, that's, the, or 2029, that's the year. And then 2050 is, like, when AI becomes super intelligent, like, surpasses humans and, mm-hmm. and so on, votes for its uh, petitions for its independence rights and things like that. I definitely think a classic example is I think why why we mistake it is because like we're used to linear thinking and this stuff is happening it's exponential. exponential. That's true. Yeah. Right. Like a great great question I I ask people like how far do you think you'll get from here where we're sitting in thirty linear steps? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know that one?
1: Yeah. Versus like the 30 expo- exponential yeah.
0: steps. Ridiculous! Sure. Ridiculous! It's. Um, so and that's that's that also I have the same feeling as every year passes I, my timeline gets closer so like my yeah. expectation for this
1: <laughs> I think it may, may also be out of selfishness that I hope it doesn't happen in my lifetime where you, it's like because uh. um, then I think something that's going to happen is it, it, it's going to be a real question of what does it mean to have consciousness mm. and what does it mean to actually be human yeah because when it's replicated completely artificially it's it's going to be something that humans are going to have to grapple with, yeah. and that's a very tough thing to think about. Of now, what does it mean to be human, have a fulfilled life, um, have consciousness when we this computer has essentially all the same things? Yeah.
0: Right? What's the difference, right? Like, how how can we discriminate against them? And now all of a sudden, they're also conscious. Yeah. Why do we consider ourselves better?
1: Exactly. Like, will they be second tier citizens? Yeah. Um, when they're actually smarter than us, yeah. um, only because we created them, so yeah. suddenly have some sort of power of them. Will they, will they live with us at the same yeah. level? Uh, yeah, these are questions for someone much smarter than me yeah. to answer or
0: think about. As, uh, some of the AI scientists or futurists think that this, like our generation and the next generation are the final generations of humans who are here. And like all, of, oh, I think this was Elon Musk's thing that we we are a, a biological. What is it called? What's the thing that starts computer? Bo- boot uh, boot sequence or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Like pre-boot, whatever. I forgot the word. But basically, like there's a there's a part. You know, when the computer starts, there's a part that like has to go first and then boot up the rest of the computer. Yeah. In, yeah. On the motherboard. Uh, so we're that's uh, like biological way to boot AI. Like to get it started. And then as soon as it started, like we we're no longer needed. We were just a, a phase in evolution that, okay, now we've created AI, boom, the end. And then from then on, this new species, artificial intelligence, uh, robots, whatever, are gonna take over the planet and so on.
1: Yeah, and it makes you think if it's, if any civilization across mm. the cosmos, if it's some sort of inevitable conclusion that once some organic system evolves enough, they create artificial intelligence as the next step that's
0: interesting possibly um what's his name and, and the thing uh, interesting thing about ai i was listening to a podcast with ben gertzel uh, recently is that it won't be like us individually you know like we always are individual and we try to we strive for the sense of community we want to uh, be on our phones all the time you know instagram and so on. like be, we want to think as a collective mind but it's hard for us because the, the way we do it is through phones, and that's very inefficient, very slow. Yeah. Whereas AI is going to be hooked up to the internet, so it's not going to be individual AIs. They're all going to be in one big mega mind. Yeah. So they're all, it's like whenever you see an AI, like whether it's a robot or a program, whatever else, it's, they're all going to be thinking the same thing and exchanging knowledge. And so therefore, for them, like for us, like one one day uh, is going to be one day, for them is going to be like one day is like 100,000 years yeah. in their collective mind. And so they're going to evolve like super fast.
1: Yeah, you know, we're so limited by our <laughs> monkey brains yeah. of what it, what consciousness even means, right? When in reality, once general AI is achieved, it's, maybe superior is not the right word, mm. but it, whatever their consciousness is, will be a higher level than what we are able to achieve as some organic system. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it will almost be like godlike.
0: It, it, and that's the thing, like, th- there's a great article on Wait But Why, where he explains the, the ladder of consciousness. Try to explain to an ant, in ant language, what a monkey is. Yeah. Like, no freaking way. Try to explain to a monkey, in monkey language, what a human is. Or like, what these moving things in the sky are, which are airplanes, it's just gonna think of the stars. Yeah. And same thing for us, why do we think we're the ultimate pinnacle of consciousness? try, there, there is a level above us which we will never be able to comprehend because just simply because of the nature of how our brains work and limitations. And like, there's no way we can ever understand. And I think AI, I really think that it will get to that level where it'll be like looking at us as ants. As ants, yeah. yeah.
1: No, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely, I don't know, it's a testament to our ignorance. Of yeah. <laughs> when we think of AI, we think of it as a copy of a human. When yeah, it really yeah. will be like we created some superior god yeah. that will hopefully be uh, benevolent, benevolent to benevolent. us <laughs> <laughs> well, i'm very glad to be part of this generation though that still yeah. doesn't have it because uh, hey, the questions that come up of uh, when general ai does exist are things that i don't <laughs> i'm glad i don't have to think about
0: it's very interesting a very interesting time to be alive
1: for sure yeah
0: all right well um jose thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for having what, me what a pleasure uh where can our students or listeners find you connect with you take your courses um follow your career
1: so probably the easiest way is just if you google search my name jose Portilla, uh the first thing that pro- pops up is probably my udemy page so you can always check that out my profile page on udemy for different courses um you can feel free to connect with me on linkedin again that's probably like the second <laughs> link on google yeah um or you can check out perioddata.com uh that's our little company for data science stuff but yeah, just Google Jose Portilla, and I'm maybe too accessible <laughs> of how you can easily contact me either on LinkedIn or messaging on Udemy.
0: Fantastic, and uh, we'll definitely include those links in the show notes. Uh, Period Data, by the way, we didn't talk about this, but I, w- I would want to give a shout out. You do corporate trainings, so yeah. if anybody's interested in corporate trainings, check out Peerian Data. I heard fantastic things about you. so
1: Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: definitely have a look at that. Um, on that note, we probably better get back to the conference and great, great chatting in person. I'm glad we did this.
1: Yeah. Likewise. we will have to do this again.
0: There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, that was Jose Portilla. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And we're super grateful for you being part of this episode. My favorite part by far was the conversation about neural networks, creating neural networks. indeed could be the future that we're heading towards where ai builds ai which builds ai which builds ai and so on and then we will live in a world that we probably would, wouldn't even recognize today and then we will live in a world that we probably wouldn't even recognize today as always the show notes for this episode are available at superdatascience.com/309 that's superdatascience.com/309 there you can find the transcript for this episode any materials research papers images that we mentioned on this episode and of course the urls for jose's linkedin website and udemy profile where you can find all of his courses i highly encourage everybody to check out jose's courses on udemy and if you or your company are interested in in in-person corporate trainings jose is doing a great job in that space you can find him at his website perioddata.com On that note, if you enjoyed this episode, forward it to somebody you know, somebody who's passionate about data science, analytics, AI, machine learning, somebody who's learning these things online, or maybe somebody who's already following Jose and you know that they love him and would love to hear from him on this podcast. It's very easy to share the episode. Just send the link superdata slash 309. On that note, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time, and I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing.